see, you know, if you see a, a fly stuck in a trap, you know, uh, what are you thinking about? You might have heard the news that this month, the UK Parliament introduced the Animal Welfare Sentience Bill. This legislation means that all vertebrate animals will be recognised as sentient beings for the first time in UK law and will also ensure that animal sentience is taken into account when developing policies. But what does this mean? What is sentience, anyway? And why does it matter? In order to investigate, I spoke to Dr. Janet Puckatat. I am a researcher at the Sentience Institute, which is an interdisciplinary social science think tank that is studying how we can best examine and expand humanity's moral circle. I have a PhD in psychological and brain sciences. This think tank, the Sentience Institute, is based in New York and is founded on the principle of effective altruism, meaning that they strive to help others as much as possible using the best evidence available. They envision a society in which the interests of all sentient beings are fully considered regardless of their race, sex, species, substrate, location, or any other characteristic apart from their sentience. They say that they see this expansion of the moral circle of humanity as an important means to preventing suffering now and in the far future. I asked Dr. Pakatat about how she became interested in this field of research. I think, um, you know, I look around at the world and I see a lot of injustice, a lot of suffering, and I have always wanted to do something about that. And so I, I thought, you know, psychology, this is a great field. You know, there's a lot of questions. People are asking a lot of these questions that are really important um, to answering, like how can we make the world a better place? And one thing that comes up is, is the issue of sentience and how people feel and how non-human animals feel and what that what that means and how that impacts our behavior. Like many concepts explored on this podcast, sentience is a hotly debated topic and has been for quite some time. It's only reasonably recently in history that this topic has been of interest to biologists and neuroscientists having for centuries been mainly debated within circles of philosophers. You might remember from episode one, a brief history of arguments that human beings are somehow special in the universe of creation. Sentience was often a large part of this discussion, and many philosophical arguments for non-sentience were put forth by eminent philosophers throughout history, such as Aristotle, René Descartes, who has popped up a number of times in this podcast and, in my opinion, has a lot to answer for, thanks to his views on animals being mere automata, and therefore allowing countless animals to suffer through horrific abuses at the hands of vivisectionists. And Thomas Aquinas, who, interestingly, a new assembly hall was named after in my Catholic secondary school when I was there, something I publicly questioned the logic of, much to the chagrin of our headmistress, because, as a 17-year-old, I couldn't understand why we were dedicating a part of our all-girls school to a man who quite famously held the position that females are inherently subordinate to males. I never did get a satisfactory answer to that one. 
Immanuel Kant, another very prominent historical figure in philosophy, argued that we should be kind to animals. But his rationale was not that we should do it for the animal's sake. In his Lectures on Ethics, his position is made clear. If a man shoots his dog because the animal is no longer capable of service, he does not fail in his duty to the dog, for the dog cannot judge, but his act is inhuman and damages in himself that humanity which it is his duty to show towards mankind. If he is not to stifle his human feelings, he must practice kindness towards animals, for he who is cruel to animals becomes hard also in his dealings with men. This view is therefore one of indirect duties towards animals, similar to what we discussed in episode 3 on animal law. During the Enlightenment, however, some challenges to these arguments started appearing. David Hume, a Scottish philosopher, wrote, Is it not experience which renders a dog apprehensive of pain when you menace him or lift up the whip to beat him? Perhaps most famously, Certainly within the realms of students of animal ethics, there are the words of Jeremy Bentham, the English social reformer, who, in 1823, wrote, The question is not, can they reason, nor, can they talk, but, can they suffer? An early 19th century English veterinarian, William Ewett, wrote that animals have senses, emotions, and consciousness, and that, with regard to sentience in human beings and animals, the difference between them, in one of the most essential of all points, is in degree, and not in kind. The growing acceptance of Darwinian theory of evolution also meant that feelings began to be viewed as adaptions to natural selection pressures. For example, most things that are painful, like walking through thorny bushes, will probably decrease your chances of survival, because the cuts and wounds you will receive could get dangerously infected. On the flip side, things that are beneficial for our survival, such as eating densely calorific food, tend to feel really good, which I'm sure at least partially explains our species' love affair with chocolate. Despite this common sense approach, an early branch of psychology called behaviorism had a huge effect on how scientists thought about the mind, consciousness, and feelings for the majority of the 20th century. Behaviorists, as the name suggests, were focused on behavior, that is, the observable effects of a given stimulus or environment on an animal. They referred to the mind as the black box, where input enters and output exits, but the internal processes that relate the input to the output are not observable. And because the scientific method is based on observation, it would therefore be unscientific to try to explain them, and any attempt to do so was a waste of time. One of the most famous behaviorists, B.F. Skinner, in 1975 wrote, We seem to have a kind of inside information about our behavior. We have feelings about it. And what a diversion they have proved to be. Feelings have proved to be one of the most fascinating attractions along the road of dalliance. Today, and particularly with the advent of new technologies such as electroencephalograms, or EEGs, and functional magnetic resonance imaging machines, or fMRIs, that allow us to examine the workings of the brain, 
has meant that these internal processes can now be examined and therefore the black box analogy has been more or less discarded. However, similar to the problem of consciousness, we still cannot transport ourselves directly into the mind of another and experience what they are experiencing. Therefore, there are still many open questions surrounding sentience and debates within the field. I asked Dr. Pocatat about her thoughts on this highly debated subject. Generally, when I think of sentience, I am thinking of it as the capacity of a being or an entity to have positive and negative experiences, which can essentially be mean to say happiness and suffering. So like the ability to feel and have those sorts of emotional experiences. There's some disagreement amongst people. Some people take the definition a little bit further and maybe want to emphasize the subjective awareness of it. Like if I'm a human and I'm sad and I can say that I'm sad, then we know that I'm a sentient being. And there are a lot of discussions going on in various fields where people are studying sentience. My reading of, of all of these fields is essentially that Basically, insects, crustaceans, cephalopods, mammals, birds, all of these um, beings are sentient, at least to some degree. Um, there, are, there are some arguments based on the structure of the central nervous system or the nervous system in general and the types of pain receptors. Such as nociceptors, recently discovered in fish by Dr. Lynn Snedden, who had on last time, and the behavioral responses to stimuli that we know should be painful um, or that we as humans have decided should be painful. There are some people who would uh, still argue that perhaps insects, um, maybe fish and cephalopods, they would still be arguing against sentience for those entities. But that is not the perspective that I take. I tend to follow the the researchers who are, who are showing this evidence, like, yes, there is um, the capacity to suffer in these entities as well, even though they may have smaller brains or a little bit differently structured nervous systems. So is sentience closely linked then to the capacity to feel pain? Um, yes, I think so. I would uh, maybe qualify it a little bit more in terms of like, you need to be able to suffer the and pain is, you know, like a version of suffering, but you can have like momentary pain, like you stub your toe and, and that's not necessarily suffering of the extent to like living in a, in a really cramped space where you can't move at all and you're suffering every day or mental suffering. It doesn't just have to be physical. And how then does sentience relate to consciousness? Do you need to be conscious in order to be sentient? Or perhaps it's the other way around, and that sentience is the prerequisite to consciousness. <laughs> That's another gold star question, and I think there are a lot of people who have a lot of thoughts on this topic. And in some ways, sentience can be thought of as and maybe an aspect of consciousness. It's like the ability to feel and to have these experiences is maybe part of consciousness. But consciousness as a whole could be a, a bit bigger, like it could include things like metacognition or the ability that I can think about my thoughts or the ability to have theory of mind and think about 
how other people are experiencing the world, those could also be included in definitions of consciousness where they might not necessarily be included in all definitions or even the ability to have positive and negative experiences. So, you know, that, that in itself could be a little controversial. Some people, you know, like consciousness, we don't know how to really assess it or even to really define it. So there is still, I think, a lot of discussion on that point. Yet again on this podcast, it seems that we have encountered a problem that is one of definition. With each researcher, scientist, and scholar subscribing to a specific definition of a phenomenon based on the school of thought that they already subscribe to, so where does our guest, Dr. Pocatet, stand on this issue? My current thinking on this, and this is by no means representative of, of everybody in the, in the area, but my current thinking is that it's very difficult to assess whether non-human animals have consciousness, but uh, you can tell when something is suffering or feeling pleasure in a different way. And so I tend to think of sentience as currently at least and this could change based on if the science changes but i think of it as a spectrum so there's degrees of sentience and at some point consciousness might come into play so as you get further and further up the scale of having higher sentience let's say then at some point consciousness might start to develop, although that all hinges on whether we think consciousness really exists. There are some some perspectives in philosophy and psychology that don't think that consciousness is a real construct at all. It's just we, we don't understand how the different subcomponents of any nervous system work together to produce consciousness. And so we, we call it consciousness, but we don't, you know, maybe it's not actually even a term called consciousness. Last time on Animalistic, we had fish biology and welfare expert, Dr. Lynn Snedden, present her evidence that fish feel pain, something that had been long debated in the scientific community before her discoveries. With more and more people accepting that fish feel pain, within the realms of science and perhaps even in the wider public, recently the frontier seems to have now shifted from fish to insects. With a hugely growing human population, scientists are now investigating ways to feed what will soon be more than 8 billion humans. There is growing acceptance for the idea of using insects as a cheap and reasonably sustainable source of protein, which can have the potential to supplement our diets in the forms of powders, as opposed to the less palatable, at least for Westerners, forms of eating them whole. A few weeks ago, Richard Godwin wrote an article in the Guardian's Online Observer Food section entitled If we want to save the planet, the future of food is insects. Apart from eating them ourselves, he writes, they are also being explored as a livestock food, i.e. to be the food of the animals we humans then eat. In this article, he interviews Dr. Sarah Bainon, an entomologist who runs the Bug Farm, a working insect farm and visitor attraction in Pembrokeshire, who believes that using insects for livestock feed does not really solve the problem. The problem being the issue of our insane overconsumption of meat. She is quoted as saying, 
It's slightly crazy to me to feed the byproducts of animal-based farming to insects, which are then fed into an animal-based farming system. The more extra steps you have in the food chain, the more energy and food you're wasting. It's always more efficient and sustainable to take a step out, by which she means eating plants and insects directly. And there is then, of course, the issue of what may be perhaps billions of insect deaths to replace relatively fewer mammal deaths, which is a problem if you take a utilitarian stance, which is to believe that absolute numbers matter. But then again, only if you believe insects are sentient. At some point, in order to make decisions about our practices with regards to animals, we need to draw the line somewhere. But where? I would draw it at insects at this point in time. I mean, including insects. So, and I, I don't think that we lose very much by doing that. If it, if it means that we start to think more about other beings and their experiences in the world in terms of how we interact with them and how we as humans treat them. And I found the, the research on insects to be, to be fairly compelling. But this is, this is fairly new. So I wouldn't personally include insects all the way up. <laughs> this pretty progressive view, however, may still take some time to filter out into wider society. At least some steps in the right direction are happening, such as the UK's new sentience bill, which is set to cover all vertebrate animals from farm to forest, as stated on the UK government's website. Enshrining vertebrate sentience into law means that any new legislation will have to take into account the fact that animals can experience feelings such as pain or joy. The bill will underpin the government's Action Plan for Animal Welfare, which launched this month and sets out the government's plan to improve standards and eradicate cruel practices for animals both domestically and internationally through a program of legislation and non-legislative reforms. They intend to introduce a series of bills focusing on some key areas sentience, animals kept in the UK, and the welfare of animals abroad. The bills will be accompanied by a program of secondary legislation. Some specifics have already been released, so for now what we know is that this Animal Welfare Sentience Bill will formally recognise animals as sentient beings in domestic law, Establish an Animal Sentience Committee made up of experts to ensure cross-departmental government policy considers animal sentience. And ensure the government ministers update Parliament on recommendations made by this Animal Sentience Committee. This all sounds great, but what does it really mean in terms of our thinking of and our treatment of animals? And what does it mean for the animals? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, from, from the perspective that I'm working in currently, um, it's a great way for us to think about the expansion of humanity's moral circle as a whole. So if these, if this range of, of beings is sentient, then essentially they deserve some sort of moral consideration. Like the way we treat them changes if we acknowledge and accept that they ha can suffer or can feel pleasure. So. In some ways, it, I, to me, I think that's a good thing because we can expand our, our boundaries as humans and become um, wider and more morally inclusive. 
Um, there are there are other ramifications of this, like um, the the UK's recent uh, attempt and hopefully passage of this uh, animal sentience bill into a law. So there are ramifications for how we can then legally treat non-human animals that we accept and acknowledge are, are sentient. But essentially, one thing that I think is clear is that it's a, it should be a major benefit to the lives of sentient animals in the UK um, in that there will be better protections for them. So you won't be able to, as a human, you won't be able to do certain things that you might have been able to do before, like take the fin off of a shark and put it into a soup to eat, which is um, at, at least one of the provisions in this bill as I understand it. So, and that's a major benefit because that sort of that sort of human behavior causes a lot of suffering for sharks in this case. Um, so that that's a really good thing. It also uh, brings the UK back to, I think, a position that is is more defensible in terms of animal welfare in, in recognizing that these are these non-human animals are sentient beings. They suffer and they feel uh, pleasure and happiness and they deserve to be treated better than we have been treating them. We may never know, definitively, whether or not other creatures are sentient. In fact, some may argue that we cannot even be sure if other humans are sentient. Solipsism is a branch of philosophy based on the idea that the only thing that anyone can be sure of is the existence of their own mind. I can only ever know my own mind, so how can I know that any other mind exists? This is known as the problem of other minds. For all I know, you, listener, could be a zombie without conscious experience or sentience, and you're simply just really good at acting like you are conscious. Does this mean then, because of the existence of this doubt, that I'm then free to treat you as I please? Because I'm not sure of your sentience? Of course not. So why don't we extend this benefit of the doubt to animals, even insects, and err on the side of caution by treating all beings as if they are indeed sentient? To echo the words of my guest, what have we got to lose? I want to thank Dr. Pocatat for taking the time to speak with me this week. If you would like to learn more about the work of her and her colleagues, you can visit www.sentienceinstitute.org. As usual, links to citations will be included on our website, animalisticpodcast.com. Before finishing our conversation, though, I asked Dr. Pocatat if she could ask you, the listener, any question. What would that be? I think I, my, my question would be, you know, when you, when you see a non-human animal, whether it's an insect or a, an octopus or a, a dog, you know, and you see them have an experience, you know, do you, do you think about whether that's, that's painful or pleasant? Like, can you see, you know, if you see a, a fly stuck in a trap, you know, uh, what are you thinking about when, when that's happening? And, and 
maybe that's that's something I think just like thinking more about what's happening for these other non-human animals that's sort of what I'd I'd like to to see more and you know what do people you know what do you think about <laughs> when you see see the frustrations or the successes of a non-human you know does that spark some sort of empathy in you does do you think that it's unfortunate and what does that mean like are you acknowledging that they have sentience at that point and, that, and that's a question for you to answer for yourself <laughs> everybody has to answer that thanks for listening today's show was written researched narrated and produced by me Catherine cray Mustafa Al-Nasari was the technical assistant, and Claire Cray is our executive producer. The music was provided by Nature's Eye at Pixabay. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for The Animalistic Podcast. Until next time, stay safe, be kind. <laughs>